Hello and welcome to Trap Chat, a brand new podcast with me, Beth. And me, Andrew. We are planning to talk to you all about F1 and everything we do and don't love about the sport. So to give you a bit of background about us, I have been a fan since about 2019 when Andrew himself introduced me to the sport and basically forced me to watch Drive to Survive. I really did force you to do it as well. (laughs) Yeah, basically. I feel like I'm going to sound like one of those people now that is only a fan of F1 because of Drive to Survive and people are going to like pigeonhole me, but... All um, fans are welcome. Exactly. The more fans, the better. We don't gatekeep F1. I'm sure the more you listen to this podcast, you'll realise that F1's become an obsession. And for me, I've been a Formula 1 fan since... Well, I think the first full season that I watched would be 2013. The first actual race I watched was, um, I think, the Canadian Grand Prix, uh, I want to say 2011. For anyone that you know knows of Formula 1, that is a mega race to have started with, uh, with Jensen Button. Was it, was it 11 or 12 where he did it? It must have been 12, I think, where Jensen Button came and won from basically the back of the grid. Uh, yeah, great race. But 2013 was the first season I watched really got into it from the start um yeah something i could really get behind i love the technical side of f1 and uh yeah i have just basically watched every practice session and every race since and then have badgered all of my friends and relatives into watching formula one so they can talk to me about it and now we talk about it so much that we're going to talk to you about it basically yeah that's the idea behind this podcast We've got quite an interesting combination of Andrew, who's a really long-term F1 fan, who's got loads of background um, knowledge about the technical side of the sport, and me, who's quite a new fan, and we have these amazing long F1 chats, usually while we're playing the F1 game and trying not to crash into each other, and we thought, these chats would make a very good podcast, so that's exactly what we're going to do. We want to discuss a massive range of different things to do with F1 and we definitely want to focus on all of the teams, not just the front runners, because we feel like that can get a bit tired. So, yeah, I think we'll start off this week by talking about the back of the grid and then move forwards from there. Which, surprisingly, well, I say surprisingly, but maybe it isn't, is uh, McLaren, back of the grid. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's wrong with that team, you know. They've, they've been saying for years, look, we've got to get the infrastructure in place, we've got to get the people in place, but at some point, when do you say that it's just not working and something has to change? You know, the team got massively better 2019, 2020. I think they were third in 2020. They were very, very often in that much shorter season, the fast, well, third fastest car. You know, Orlando almost won in Russia. Was that 20 or 21? Um, and then they've just taken that massive step backwards again. And it just, to me, it seems like, you know, it was the perfect decision for them to get Piastri. It seems like an awful decision for Piastri, seeing where Alpine mm-hmm. are now. Maybe it'll play off in the long run. And I don't know what you think, Beth, but it just, there must be something wrong at that team for them to, after, you know, I get, yeah, we've only had two races this season, but to be at the back with zero points, like that, is not on for a team of that level. Yeah. Well, it's definitely like they're on a downward trajectory. And at the time last year, I really thought that like the Piastri move to McLaren instead of Alpine was like a masterstroke for Piastri. And it's crazy how it just seems to have gone the complete opposite way. 
it's a great choice for McLaren, like you say, because they've got a really strong driver lineup now, but in a car that just doesn't put those drivers where they deserve to be. And you can already say, you know, it was definitely the right decision for McLaren at no point last year or the year before, basically apart from that Italy race, you know, at Monza where Ricardo won, at no point has Ricardo been on anywhere near the level of Lando Norris, which is not a indictment of how poor Ricardo was, but more a uh, approval of how good Lando has been. And for Piastri just to drop into that seat with, yes, he has had a lot of F1 training and testing with Alpine, but not on the level that a seasoned F1 driver like Ricardo had. And yes, Ricardo yeah. didn't get on with that car, but to drop in and basically be racing with Lando on pace of that car immediately, perfect decision for McLaren. But there must mm-hmm. be something going on in the background. And, you know, in the last week or so, they've basically said, look, we're just going to restructure the entire technical department. That's not something that you just do lightly and say, oh, you know what, let's just have a bit of a shake-up. That's a, a huge decision that I feel was probably started by Andrea Seidel even, because I think he had a vision for that team and he knew how to run it. And now that he's not there, something else just isn't working. I think it does, like you say, it does really show that Ricardo wasn't the only issue. I mean, my personal opinion is that, yeah, Ricardo wasn't performing to where he could have. But I think it's really highlighted the fact that the issues at McLaren are not just driver related. There's something fundamentally wrong. And it'll be interesting to see how they try and recover from that. I mean, obviously, they are investing a lot of money in their facilities at the minute. And maybe that will help them to turn things around. But at the minute, they're not even a midfield contender. They're just... You know, but if you if you talk about a team that you know says that they're on the up and it feels like they're trying to do the right things, but then it just doesn't play out, has just absolutely Alfatari written all over it to me, because mm-hmm. that team is like, yeah, we're going to do everything we can, and then how can you have your team principal turn around and say, I don't trust the engineers anymore, I don't trust what they say to me, they say the car's good, it's not. I just feel like those two teams are on such a downward spiral at the minute. How can how can you have any more, like positive morale in those teams? Imagine going to work and you're like the boss of the company is going, yeah, I don't trust anything you say. I don't believe in your ability to do the job anymore. It's the, I mean, the Alpha Tower thing is a bit of a mess. And I don't know, for me, it begs the question, how can a team that is just seen as a sister team and kind of a lesser team to Red Bull, are they, with that attitude, ever going to end up in a competitive position? And how can they, as a sister team, be performing worse than they were when they were a junior team? And I, I think the only reason that they now call them a sister team, the only reason that I can think of, is because they can't get the young drivers through the programme to get them into the race seat. You know, you've now, you took back Gasly, which was a great decision for the team, but he wasn't a young driver and it wasn't ever going to provide him with what he needed. And eventually, like I think it did, it just gave Gasly the feeling that he was never going to do anything else there. He was never going to progress. The team was going backwards and he wasn't going to get back to Red Bull. So why stay? Now you've got De Vries, who is so far outside of the Red Bull program as it's possible to be as a Formula E champion for Mercedes. You know, that's so far removed from what you could possibly be in the junior program. And then Sonoda... I don't know. I just don't... I don't get the Sonoda hype. Yeah, I mean, I think the Red Bull Junior programme's almost going through a bit of a 
turbulence period because it's had such a good reputation in the past for bringing these amazing talents in the sport and you can't deny that like a lot how many drivers on the grid are from the Red Bull Junior programme not even just on the F1 grid in in the racing universe in general you know I remember like first watching F1 it was Sebastian Boemi Jaime Aljusuari I think that's how you say his name Northern pronunciation we'll just butcher things like that Um, (laughs) you know then you ended up with both Max and Carlos, which I think a lot of people forget that Carlos actually started at the same time as Max and was maybe not as fast, but very near equal to. Um, Sebastian Vettel, Daniel Ricciardo, even Pierre did come up through that programme. So it has been good, but you have to say, Sonoda came up from being supported by them in F2 and hasn't made the jump in the same way that a Piastri or even Sargent. Sargent impressed me in his first races. You know, Sonoda's had three seasons now, and I just don't think he's made the progress that the team needs him to. You know, if De Vries is coming in and is, after two races, almost equal to Sonoda, then Sonoda's not doing enough, and I think that's really going to be a problem for him towards the end of the season, because if it was me, I would see that as a perfect opportunity to put a Daniel Ricciardo back in the seat, because mm. at some point, Perez needs replaced. Not because he's not fast enough, because at some point he will leave F1. And yeah. what a comeback story and what a market opportunity that is to get a Ricardo back. But he, you don't know that he's still got it. And so you put him in the AlphaTauri and say, we've given you a year, show us that you still got it. What goes yeah. wrong? You know, It's an interesting one, because I agree about Sonoda. I really like Sonoda as a personality, but that's not what F1's about. It's about the best drivers getting yeah. a chance in the best cars in the world. So I don't know. It's an odd one. I definitely cannot see him progressing into the Red Bull seat. He's not got the maturity. I mean, he said himself in like the first year that he didn't take the fitness seriously and, and stuff, and I'm not sure that he's got the right attitude for it. But then... And I think that's the big point, though, is that if, if, he's, if we already think that he's not good enough to be in the Red Bull team then what's the point in keeping them in AlphaTauri? Exactly. Well, historically, it's always served as the first step towards the Red Bull seat, so it'll be interesting to see. If he can't challenge Max, and he's not near Perez's level, then as far as Red Bull are concerned, in my view, there's not much point in keeping him around. I think at the minute he's there almost to serve the purpose of experience. There needs to be an experienced hand in that car. Now that Pierre's gone and they've got De Vries, who's not got much F1 experience under his belt yet, albeit his first showing in F1 last year was really impressive. Um, They needed someone who was familiar with that team and that seat. So, yeah, his future and what happens next year, as far as Sonoda's concerned, is very up in the air. But then I think going totally the opposite way around, a team that has just so genuinely and actually really it's really nice to see and it's been such a nice story this year it's that Williams are just not the worst team which sounds horrible to say but Williams have been the slowest car with the exception of maybe the Haas mm-hmm. over the last year or well, a couple of years now I think there's rightly a lot of positivity around Williams at the minute I think the move to take James Bowles as the team principal is a brilliant move. I think he's got the right 
mindset towards it. He seems to be determined to change the kind of culture and way that Williams attack a race weekend. And I think it's going to be really positive for them overall. They've got a good driver pairing by the looks of it. Albon, we know, is capable of producing strong results and getting points. He already has. And then Sargent had such a good showing in the first in his first weekend to finish P12 in a Williams. I mean, it's looking more positive for them now than it has done in the last few seasons, at least. Yeah, I, th- I, think, I think James Vowell's arrival at Williams should be viewed in the same light and the same magnitude as Zach Brown's arrival at McLaren. But instead of what Zach Brown bought, brought to McLaren, which was the marketing side, which that team desperately needed, James Vowles brings the technical leadership, which that team desperately needs right now. I think he will stay there for a long time unless he hits barriers and isn't allowed to do what he wants and needs to do at that team. Well, I remember actually you had a really interesting theory that you said when we were doing one of our races, and you said that you think they brought Vowles in as kind of like a almost like Mercedes let him go intentionally knowing that he would lead Williams for a few years get some team principal experience under his belt and then potentially return to Mercedes at such a time as Toto Wolff decides to pack it in uh, yeah and I, st- I still do think that because it's it's almost the perfect insurance policy you give him the freedom that he's always had when he's been at Mercedes and he says look I want to go and do this opportunity at Williams and, and to them like to, to, to Mercedes, they must be thinking, this is fantastic. Eventually, Toto is going to, you know, he's got kids now, he's got other commitments in life, and eventually he will start looking at other things. Same as the drivers do, same as anyone does in life. Eventually, he will have had enough. And at that point, Mercedes will be able to say, well, James, we've given you that, you know, year, a couple of years of experience, you know, even if it's you know, five, ten years or whatever it is. We could pay you a bit more money if you want to come back to Mercedes and run a, you know, at that point, probably still better funded and working team. That is a really solid plan for Mercedes. If that's what they have done, then hats off to them because I think that's a great idea. I'm interested to see how it plays out and if you're right, because I think that's a strong possibility now. But it, it does all depend on how his reputation at Williams develops because if that team doesn't make any moves and stays or goes backwards then our Mercedes is going to turn around and say well actually we aren't really sure that we want you back now yeah I guess it's all to play for for him he's got to prove himself at a lesser team to get the big job if it is a big job at that time because we don't know how Mercedes will perform but yeah we'll get to that yeah that's true I mean even at that point it might not be the Mercedes team anymore you know that team has been sold before it's been Honda Braun yeah I believe it was BAR before that like you know teams do come and go I love how we've got on to prophesizing the end of Mercedes as a team what a start to the podcast (laughs) well you know I've got my my little crystal ball (laughs) out you know I'm just just channeling my inner prophecy here but I guess at the minute, anyway, without prophesizing Mercedes doom, um, James Fowles actual competition at the minute, as the standings are, is Haas, which Haas and Williams are level on points, which is one point each. But how do we think that's going to play out? Who's going to come out on top of the two of them? I really think it will be Williams, because I don't think Haas are in the right position at the moment 
to keep developing that car in the way they think they can. I don't think you can go three seasons without bringing in-season updates to the car, or not on that scale of other teams. Like Williams have consistently brought updates to that car last year. They basically redid the entire sideboard concept of the car halfway through last season. I don't think Haas can effectively scale those upgrades as well as they think they'll be able to, and so I think Williams will take them. I think for Haas, it was the right decision to bring Hulkenberg back, but I am also sad that Schumacher didn't get the opportunity to stay because he's. I don't think he was a bad driver. I think he just needed a bit more of a friendly environment rather than having the probably very admittedly scary Gunther Steiner shouting at you because you pushed a bit too far because the team wanted points. I do think it was the right thing for that team to get rid of Schumacher, savage as it is. I mean, I know he shows a, he showed a lot of promise in junior categories, but maybe arguably not as much as drivers like Russell and Norris. and. Yeah, they, they called him a second-season driver, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about his junior career to really comment on that, but it does stand out more, I guess, when you've got drivers like Russell and Piastri who win categories in their like first season in them. So I guess that's one thing. And then once he was in the Haas, the confidence just wasn't there, which you can maybe say that's due to the car being the way it was in those seasons that he was with them. It wasn't the most drivable car on the grid. But equally, yeah. Haas is not a team that can afford a driver that's putting the car in the wall consistently. And I do sympathise with them for that because in the cost cap era, no team's going to like that anyway. But with Haas being a smaller team on a smaller budget, that's just going to hit them even harder and they just can't sustain that. I do agree. I think Schumacher had his moments and when there were moments, they were big moments where he would crash. But then I'm pretty sure that Hulkenberg has broken his front wing in both of the first races, pretty much on the first couple of laps as well, and then ended up going backwards. Maybe it's just taking them a bit of time to get back into it, I don't know, but... It must have been difficult for Schumacher to go from that 2020 car, I want to say, that was just the back of the grid. Is that the right car yeah. I'm thinking about? The first, the first. Um, I'm not going to say the sponsor name, the first Russian sponsored one that was white. Yeah. Um, yeah. That car was pure back of the grid and it was just the two of them racing together. It must have been difficult to go from that car to then a car that you could actually race with. I suppose it's like almost having your first season again because you've not actually been in a car that's drivable until that point. But hard one to really gauge Schumacher's ability when he's never been in a car that could do much for a prolonged period of time. Yeah, and never consistently either. Like You go from two cars that were horrendous and you couldn't really get any development feedback because there was no upgrades during the season to a brand new type of car that no one's ever driven before but you're suddenly expected to know how to drive it perfectly, despite the fact you've not had the experience that everyone thinks you basically have because you've been at the back of the grid anyway. So I do sympathise, but, you know, years out, Hulkenberg's back. Out of all the drivers it could have been, I'm happy that it was Hulkenberg. I either would have wanted him or Stoffel van Dorn, who I believe does deserve the same chance as De Vries. But it was one of them. It was Hulkenberg, and I'm happy with that. I guess we are, we're literally two races in as well, so there's a lot still to come and maybe Hulkenberg will really pull it back and it'll be exciting to see how he does the rest of the season. Well, yeah, I hope so. I'd really like to see him. I'd love to, I'd love for him to get that podium. 
even if everyone else just stops on the track and lets them go through, shh, <laughs> we need to like manifest this Hulkenberg podium and in my crystal ball, I can see that that will happen. <laughs> Get the crystal ball out again. Yeah, it would be amazing, wouldn't it? The most amount of races to end up on the podium. What a stat. <laughs> I'm not sure it's the stat he wants, but there you go. Yeah, it's the it's not, it's not the stat that he deserves, but it's the stat that he has. I think talking about crystal balls, the team for me that really is my one to watch for the future and that I'm really excited about is Alfa Romeo. What a smooth segue that was. I'm very <laughs> impressed. Yeah, I, um, well, I just came up with it off the top of my head, what can I say? <laughs> um, I think that Alfa Romeo, not as Alfa Romeo, will be one of the next generation of forces to be reckoned with in F1. I think the combined might of the VW group through Audi in that team will be an absolute monster especially considering they've got their own engine it will be a works team yeah i just think it's it's audi has pulled the absolute blinder that porsche couldn't yeah i'm very excited to see how audi do but i think not to take away from how good it'll be for the sport to have the vw group and audi involved I am a little disappointed that they're not coming in as their own team because I would love to see an 11th team on the grid, more drivers on the grid, more cars on the grid. But yeah, yeah. overall, I'm, well, I'm looking forward my to My hope is, is that we essentially get Audi as a replacement for Sauber and then we also get an 11th team. I, I'd love to see that Andretti Cadillac team get that extra slot on the grid and then we end up with the best of both worlds where we've got two new work teams on the grid anyway that would be really nice to see but it's interesting seeing all the kind of well the comments from the FIA and F1 about who should and shouldn't be allowed to join the grid I find that quite weird in a way that they're not super excited to have teams interested in joining I know I think I think Formula One the FIA as a collective were really holding out for a Porsche-esque company to come along and say, yeah, we want in, so that they could show off their prowess of the new rules. And Mm. I don't think, with Cadillac being an American company, you know, we don't get them here in the UK as much as I would really like a big V8 Cadillac that makes a lot of noise. Um, Cadillac, please, please, please give me one. I, I just think that Cadillac doesn't, appeal as much to F1 because they are just American and eventually that the American revolution that F1's having at the minute will die out and at that point will Cadillac lose interest and leave once it's not suddenly all about America anymore. I think the F1 and FIA group would have preferred a, a worldwide manufacturer to come in that everyone could recognise wherever they go in the world. Like Cadillac is an amazing company and has great history but it is, at the end of the day, a General Motors brand. See, that's an interesting one, because without going off on too much of a tangent, I'm not sure that American interest in F1 is going to die down anytime soon, especially with, I mean, whether you're for or against it, they are adding more American dates to the calendar, tracks to the calendar. <laughs> against it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> agreed on that one. But... I'm not sure that interest is going anywhere anytime soon. I think F1 has the potential to capture the American market. Whether that's good or bad, I'm not sure. But 
Yeah, you know, we can review we can revisit this in a, in, a, in another episode, but I, I think we I could think do a, a whole episode on this. <laughs> maybe we will. Maybe when it gets to Vegas, we'll do a um, and a what we think of the American races. But like very very briefly, I think that the Vegas hype will die quite quickly. Um, I don't think it'll be a spectacular race to watch, and therefore I don't think it'll be much of a spectacle to attend. And then I think Miami. I don't think the first Miami race held up to the height that it had built anyway with that fake water. Um, but the only one that I think is perfect is Circuit of the Americas. I love Texas. I've never been, but I love the race. And I, I just think, yeah, wrong direction. We'll save that for another episode because I could talk for so many hours on <laughs> my view on street tracks and the Americas. But yeah. Yes, I think we've just found a topic for another podcast. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Note that one down. We'll be doing but, that at some uh, point for sure. We'll we'll go back to Alfa Romeo for now and to slightly Audi. Audi, if you're listening, please keep the red carbon floor from your concept car. Beth hates it. I love it. It would stand out so much and just be like, I don't even know if you're legally allowed to do it in Formula One. Just just break the rules. Please do it for me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> just for you. Andrew. Completely yeah. alter the concept of your car. Get a bit of paint on there that you'll probably hate having in this like weight reduction era. Just get some paint on the carbon fibre. Um, I hate it because I think it makes it look like a plastic toy. don't know. I think there's, there's maybe nothing better than um, tinted carbon fibre. <laughs> okay, well, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. We have similar opinions on a lot of things, but when it comes to liveries, we are actually quite different. We disagree so, quite heavily on a lot of it. We maybe do. we should do an episode on liveries as well, I'm sure. I'm sure I could find many opinions that everyone will disagree with on liveries. But you know, you're, you're talking about um, car colours. Um, potentially the most violently coloured car on the grid is the Alpine. Did you what is it with these smooth well? segues? Yeah, oh uh, my look, god. What can I say? I'm, I'm a pro um, <laughs> in episode one. Um, yeah, Alpine, a little bit on the livery. The pink doesn't do it for me, especially not the whole pink car. Don't get that at all. It's just a sponsor thing. What are you What are you promoting? Like, water isn't pink. Don't get it. Yeah, can't make an opinion. <laughs> Andrew has spoken. He has said he doesn't like the Alpine livery. So, Alpine, if you're listening to this, please change it. Andrew does not approve. And tagline for the episode is, uh, water isn't pink. <laughs> But yes, in terms of the actual car, instead of the livery, yeah, an interesting one. So they're currently fifth, smack bang in the middle of the order. But yeah, nothing uh, magical coming from that team at the moment. I just think, I think it's the awful mix of a really, I think that car has potential. You know, I took them out of my fantasy team when I shouldn't have. I think that team has potential. It's just the operational side of that team has just dropped the ball so, so hard. And again, don't want to, like, you know, say it's someone's fault. But, you know, even since it was Renault, that team has not been managed correctly. You've gone through, you know, three or four different team principals or team leader roles. What We had Cyril Abitbull, then we had... Oh, God, I can't remember the guy's name that came afterwards. They left. Then it was, you've got a CEO taking over, and then now you've got Otmar Safnauer. I don't know, I just, 
he really needs to turn that team around because operationally, how do you get three penalties in the same race for breaking the rules and then breaking the rules again? And they aren't new yeah. rules. Like it's not like oh, there was a new technical directive and you accidentally broke it. It's it's basic rules of Formula One that have been yes. around as long as I can remember. If you've got a five second penalty, you don't work on the car. And changing a tire, funnily enough would constitute to me changing the car and working on it. Mad. I don't understand that at all. And it, was, it wasn't it was even like it was a small amount. Like We both watched that race and both text each other going, that was way sooner than five seconds. No, it was visible. It wasn't. It was obvious for everyone to see. There will have been a message to the FIA saying this was illegal probably yeah. before that car even left the pit box. I mean, I know, obviously, that was a shambolic start for the team and also for Ocon himself, who was obviously subject to all of that, what was it, 35 seconds worth of penalties? Yeah. So, at the minute, their two drivers are obviously equal on points, but I don't know. That might be different had Ocon not got those penalties. Do we think that he is going to lead the way for the team this season as their longest standing driver, or will Gasly... Give him a bit of a challenge. I think that Ocon is so comfortable right now that it might actually not be an advantage for him because he's on such a long-term contract that it doesn't really matter what he does, whereas Pierre has a very big point to prove. He has come from a team, like we said earlier, that is going backwards and he has a chance to deliver those performances and I think that will make him more... Des- not desperate, more ready to prove that he can deliver the same performances. He has seen that Ocon has won a race in that car. He will want that. Definitely. He definitely has a point to prove, as does any driver who joins a new team. But I guess the thing with Gasly and Ocon is how closely matched they are in their F1 careers so far. I know it was talked about and talked about at the end of last season when the move was announced, how similar their careers to date are and their number of points and podiums, bits like that. But I think that Gasly is an interesting one. I think he'll pose a real threat to Ocon. I find that really interesting because you, like, they are so close on points. But you would have to say they're close on points with Pierre being in arguably worse cars. Yes. With Pierre being in Alpha. Yes, he had that sort of six months at Red Bull, but even then he wasn't really getting the results. Whereas Ocon has been in the Alpine and the Renault and the, well, was it Force India? It was Force India at that point. All of which were, I'd say, overperforming cars. Whereas Pierre's been, I would say again, apart from his Italy race where he won, not really on the same level of car performance. So interesting that they're on sort of the same level of points. I think they are quite a nice little driver pairing I mean I don't know how much the um, past history between the two drivers is going to come into play that was bigged up as well last year but I'm not sure that that's maybe all it's hyped up to be they seem to be getting on with the job quite okay at the minute but I guess it depends how competitive they become with each other I think it depends until the two of them have their first on track fight yes and then it'll be we need you to let him through no I don't want to Um, Yeah, and that will set it off I think it's one to watch for sure for the rest of the season genuinely my biggest worry about Alpine 
again with my crystal ball is that team being Alpine being owned by Renault. Renault is owned in a fairly large portion by the French government and therefore their French taxpayer. They are still working out of that Enstone factory that is basically extensions on extensions of extensions of its original facility. I think they should be going down the Aston Martin route of a new factory where everyone actually can work together. But I don't think they're ever going to get that investment. I don't think they're ever going to be able to go to the French government and say, yeah, we actually want to spend that money on a new racing factory. Because they're just going to go, but you've already got one. Yeah, it's a very unusual setup for a F1 team to be responding to their country's government and reliant on the country's government. Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's just we'll see. Maybe they will get that investment. I don't see it. Um, and you know, you're gonna laugh at me now because I'm gonna have a really slick transition. Going from a team <laughs> that I think should have a new factory or a new style, a new investment, we have the team on the grid that probably has the most investment that's ever been put into a Formula One team, probably in any company in the world. It's Ferrari. That team has every facility, every person they could ever possibly want or ask for. They can afford them. And who says no to Ferrari? Nobody says no to Ferrari. And yet that car is almost destined to go backwards. Well, have they got the people? I don't know. If they've got the facilities and the race weekends just aren't coming together, then what is causing the problem? But then you get this debate of, well, Bonotto wasn't the problem because look at them now, they're still struggling. So it's not the people, it's something else. But I don't know, I think it might be a cultural problem at Ferrari that things just don't change. Maybe they easily get complacent and they think, well, we're Ferrari and it'll come together for us. I just can't understand what's gone wrong with that team for them to have been at the start of last year. I think almost everyone agrees that that was the best car on the grid. It was fast. It was The concept was incredible that they came out with with those side pods. And I I just started that season thinking this is definitely going to win. Um, And wow, what a disappointment by the end of the season for them to almost be coming third to Mercedes. Yeah, and just to systematically throw away results with reliability or strategy or it's just I think you are totally you absolutely hit the nail on the head there there is a culture problem at Ferrari there I think has been a culture problem at Ferrari for the last decade since I'm going to say the end of the Schumacher era I think 2007 was a very lucky one-off with Kimi Raikkonen and i don't think that team at the minute, the way it operationally works, like Alpine, deserves to win a title. And I think last year fooled them that whatever it is they thought they'd done to fix the problems had worked. And it hasn't. It, it, I think that team just needs either totally detached from the car company or given such a level of responsibility that it is essentially its own thing because it just doesn't seem to work when it's so attached to the rest of the company. I, as you know, Andrew, have a lot of opinions about Ferrari, and it's probably one of the 
topics in F1 that me and Andrew most regularly disagree on. I think it's safe to say Andrew has a higher opinion of Ferrari than I do, but I really, see Ferrari when... as the way a lot of other people see Williams. I like. I think Sebastian Vettel was right. Everyone is or wants to be a Ferrari fan. The problem is they just make it so hard to actually like them. Right? You watch that Drive to Survive series when they're getting rid of Vettel. It's just heartbreaking to watch it. They just basically threw him out, you know, into the cold and said, "See you later, mate. Cheers for you know get, devoting four years of your life to it." But well, it's not really bothered anymore. Mm. I'm going to be devil, devil's advocate and strongly disagree that with that. Everyone is a Ferrari fan. Saying, I am not a Ferrari fan. When I started watching F1, my initial impression of them. Um, again, I understand this might be completely different to someone who's been like a diehard fan since the Schumacher era when they were probably incredible to watch. But my initial impression of Ferrari, first season I watched, was they have this holier-than-thou attitude of, we are Ferrari, we get the biggest say in F1, we have the veto. I mean, there was the whole engine fiasco. I know they weren't the, like, you know, the top car that season, but I think it was 2019, was it, Andrew, the engine fiasco, where it was all like... yeah. Yeah. They've done something illegal and we're not going to quite disclose what it was. Um, but all you need to know is that they won't do it again. They've had the smack on the hand. No, for me, that does not sit right. There is no team in any sport that should be allowed or given that level of kind of, don't worry about it, you can get away with that. And we understand and respect that you are Ferrari and you've been in the sport since the beginning. The one that really rose me up the wrong way is the veto. I don't think any team should have a innate right or ability above the others to decide what's right for the rest. I think there's that, a whole point why teams get together and talk about rule changes is because they're all in it together. And then to have one who... And I, it is, as far as I can see, genuinely because F1 is so scared Ferrari will leave... I don't see it ever happening because it's just the brand. I Yeah, I agree. I don't see Ferrari leaving F1 and throwing their toys out of the pram that badly if they were disallowed the veto. And if they did, that is just absolutely ridiculous. All those people are a racing team. If you're not going to race in F1, where are you going to race? They're already now in the World Endurance Championship. Ferrari's brand is not Formula E. As much as Formula E would love it, I don't think you'll ever see a fully electric Ferrari... I'm going to say ever. If you do, I don't think they'll be in Formula E. I don't think they need to learn anything from it. So then you're left with IndyCar. No point if you're not an engine manufacturer and the cars don't have any distinctive looks. They're all the same. So what does that leave you with? Rally. Ferrari's never going to be a rally team. Basically, where does Ferrari exist if it's not F1? But I guess on the flip side to call myself out i am saying all this we are saying all this stuff about ferrari and the veto and how it shouldn't be allowed and no team should have that level of power which i stand by that you wouldn't get that in the premier league you wouldn't get someone a football team turning around and saying we don't want that and then the premier league bowing down and going okay but all that considered the fact they have that veto and everything it's not really helped them at least not so far this season because they're back in fourth which again I would never have imagined that at the start of last season with how strong they looked. So they do seem to be 
going backwards through the field at the minute. Um, disappointing to see because despite not being a huge uh, Ferrari fan, I do really like um, the drivers, especially Carlos Sainz. I think they deserve better than what they're getting at the minute. I just think it's a shame because the problem is they need a team principal who is willing to get rid of the veto and sacrifice that for the good of the sport. But then they're always going to be remembered as the team, within Italy and within Ferrari anyway, they're going to be remembered as the team principal who lost the veto. And any time they ever have a rule change that's not in their favour, they're just going to put it on that person. Moving on from our huge rant about Ferrari, which we've clearly got a lot of feelings about that, Ahead of them so far, um, a Mercedes, who are in a weird limbo at the moment of deciding whether they want to completely change their car concept. Which just seems absolutely crazy to me. I don't understand. I think they, they convinced themselves so hard last year that the only reason that car was slow was because it porpoised. I think they utterly convinced themselves that was the only reason it was slow. And if they stopped doing that, it would magically instantly be fast. And then they've turned up this year and it doesn't porpoise anymore. They've sorted out the suspension, whatever it was that was causing it to happen. And they put it out on track and gone, oh, but actually it, it's, it doesn't magically just go faster. Which to me is, is crazy. I don't understand. And to then... After what, I mean, really, before one race has even been done, to go back to your team and say, redo it all, copy Red Bull if you have to. I don't understand how they looked in the wind, did they look in the wind tunnel and say, actually, Red Bull sort of has a point here, or Ferrari. They, there is a reason why no other team has copied it. Like, there's no Williams copied it, there's no Haas copied it, there's no even Alfa Romeo or something, you know. No other team has copied Mercedes and gone, actually, that concept has legs if we can stop the Portwison. All of them have gone down the Red Bull route. And it just sort of feels like Mercedes have almost had a bit of Ferrari arrogance where they've said, no, we do know best. But then to immediately have realised that it isn't right, surely there is something wrong there. And at the best, it is a single mistake by a team or a group of people to have not changed that concept earlier or at worst it is a team that has dominated formula one consecutively making bad decisions and panicking and then making more bad decisions which is just how mclaren went and slid back down the grid and they still haven't recovered yet so mercedes in my opinion absolutely have to get it sorted next year if they're not back up there next year they're just going to keep panicking and sliding I agree with what you said about Mercedes kind of almost having Ferrari-level arrogance, which I do think that they got a little complacent, not at the end of the 21 season, because I think they realised, right, okay, you know, Red Bull have caught us and we're about to move on to a new kind of car and it needs to be competitive. And initially when that Zero Pod concept came out last year, I thought, that was going to be fast once they'd ironed out the focusing issues. So I understand why they had similar thoughts, but they are a team of arguably the best of the best. I also cannot understand how they didn't utilise the wind tunnel and simulations in a way that would have shown them that, no, actually, we do need to ditch this concept sooner. I don't know how 
then only now saying after two races in, yeah, no, we're going to actually ditch it and we know we're going to probably end up losing a lot of points because of that, but long-term gains, it's going to be worth it. It it just seems last minute and panicky, like you say, and that's I just don't think that bodes well for not only this season but the next few because they're now going to potentially spend the rest of this era of cars scrambling to catch up with other people's concept because, yeah, they can build the they can attempt to copy Red Bull's last season car but that's the last season car it's not the current you know innovative concept so I don't know I think that team I, is I think it's a slippery slope I'm going to get your crystal ball I'm going to steal it and I'm going to unfortunately say because I do actually really like Mercedes and I would call myself a Mercedes fan but I think they're slipping backwards and I think especially with some of the changes recently even on a driver level of Lewis Hamilton losing his um, trainer um, in Angela Cullen who he's had like for seven years I think these kind of things although they sound minor added on top of the struggle for pace from the car itself I think it's a recipe for disaster and I think it's the beginning of the end Mercedes dominance. If Mercedes now turn into a team that copies other teams' designs instead of allowing designers to come up with their own ideas, they effectively become what Aston Martin were two years ago. And at that point, I think you will start to lose the staff that have made that team so fast over the last seven, eight years because designers in the aero teams, will want to leave a team that copies to go to a team that designs their own ideas. Exactly, and innovates and doesn't just go stale and look for how they can catch up with other teams. They actually look for ways that they can put themselves ahead. And so you very quickly then end up with brain drain and you end up losing your best people and then you slip further back. But I'm going to do a smooth segue now. It's not just you, Andrew. Speaking of teams that copy... You've just said the Aston Martin copy, but it seems to have done them fairly well this year when you look at where they are. Two races in, two podiums. I would say they they copied the general idea. They, they looked at what Red Bull were doing and said, I understand the general concept, but I'm going to do my own version of it. And I, I think that Aston Martin is its own car with inspiration from Red Bull's philosophy of doing things, which probably comes from its technical director being an ex-Red Bull guy. Yeah, Yeah, I I think Aston Martin have absolutely been the saviour of this season, to be honest. I think everyone is going to have fun watching Fernando and watching Lance get podiums, wait for that Red Bull, you know, reliability problem, you know, and maybe get a win... Because it's just such a feel-good thing for a team like that to turn around and be like, you know what? We were seventh last year. We went through some really tough times. Our team, you know, almost went into administration. And now we've turned around and we are the second best car with a fairly healthy gap to third. And yeah, the gap to first is massive, but if we can do this in a year, before we've got the factory online, before we've got the new wind tunnel online, before we've all finished the new mass hiring structure we've got in place. So if you can come out of a, a, an upgrade essentially that big and be putting performance on the car instead of going backwards, 
That team looks like it's got real exactly. potential. Yeah. You t- I mean, talking about the teams that have low morale and motivation in the factories at the moment, like Mercedes and Alpha Tauri, this is the complete opposite. What a boost for them. Yeah, they must be really riding that high at the moment. And I hope it continues for them. Like you say, it's going to be the entertainment of the season if Alonso's competitive and constantly fighting at the front. Stroll as well I had a really impressive recovery from his wrist injuries coming back into racing that soon after and doing as well as he did equally yeah it's a shame to say that we're waiting on a Red Bull reliability issue for say Alonso to get a win Um, and that doesn't really bode well for the fight or lack of fight at the front I think that Red Bull could break a record this year and win every single race possible they're not going to get every point because they didn't get the fastest lap in Bahrain. I think they could win every single race. And that car is so fast that even on the races where Verstappen doesn't win, Perez should always be second. There is not an excuse with that car for a race where Perez isn't second. We've seen what Verstappen can do to come from... Was it 15th he started? Mm Mm-hmm. To come from there to finish second, and he probably could have finished first if he was allowed to push. Yeah. I, I just think there's no there's no reason outside of mechanical or electrical failure why those cars do not finish one, two in some order. Well, I think what Hamilton had to say about it being the fastest car he's ever known of, I know that caused a load of controversy and people compared it and there were really dominant um, McLarens in the areas where they were winning but I get his point what he's saying is compared to the other cars it's so unbelievably fast impossible to keep up with there's no point fighting them because you know they're going to get past so there's no point losing any time in a scrap with them there's every chance that they will win every race I do think the only thing that could let them down is reliability because we have already seen a couple of little bits creeping in where they've had to tell the drivers to be mindful of curbs and Uh, worries like that so I guess we'll just have to see how that pans out and whether that takes away a race win I'm not usually one to hope for reliability but I think this year if the Red Bull reliability isn't great then it could be reliability that gives us a genuine title fight Um, I you know have talked about an article with you that I read and it it was off uh, the race Uh, it's called can Perez do to Verstappen what Rosberg did to Hamilton Go read it. It's a really good article. The key point that I took from that is that Perez can win this championship just off Max's bad reliability. And it's happened before, and that is essentially contributing to why Rosberg beat Hamilton in 2016. Because I think out of the four engine issues that Mercedes had in that 2016 season, three of them were on Lewis's car. And so Rosberg gained the points when Hamilton couldn't score any. They've, in this article, they, they say, if Max has two DNFs in a row and Perez, as he should in that car, wins both and gets the full 50 points, not including the fastest laps, because you know that could go to anyone, it will take Max seven consecutive races of beating Perez 1-2 to get those points back. Perez can hold on in the as close as he needs as he can and per, and max has a couple of dns and all it takes is you know two or three you know dns you could see a situation where perez wins 
not off pace. I, I, as much as I rate Perez as a driver, I think it's very clear after the last season and a half he doesn't have the raw pace that Max does in that car. I think he could win a championship based purely off reliability, which to me is mega interesting and would actually kind of love to see. Say I'm also of the mind that Perez can't beat Verstappen on pure pace, but with a car that is that dominant, where if we're being honest, he can actually afford to put a foot wrong in a race and you know miss the apex of a couple of corners and still easily be right at the front. If Max has reliability issues, he's going to be there to scoop up the win. So definitely that would... I think that's the only opportunity for a championship fight, which, yeah, it's it's not ideal. Um, I'd like to see more of the other teams getting right up there, but I can't imagine it happening this season. Interestingly, that was the whole point of the new regulations, wasn't it? To bring the teams closer together. And only two seasons in, we've got this dominance. I agree that, yeah, that's the, that was the point of the new regulations, but I think they need enough time to really effectively work because of the aerodynamic testing restrictions. And we will definitely go into that again in another episode because there's, again, so much to talk about about how that works and how it's affected teams so far. I think it needs a period of time to help the smaller teams pull themselves back towards the top. Well... We definitely want to do some deep diving into the rules and regs and we love a good chat about what we do and don't like about the new era and the FIA and regulations, how they're applied. But this time, being our first podcast, we wanted to touch on how all the teams are doing, catch up on the first two races and, yeah, talk about Australia, which is obviously just in a couple of days' time. So what do you think is going to happen there, Andrew? Oh, uh, well, I think it will be uh, Max 1, uh, <laughs> Perez 2, Alonso 3. What happens after that is anyone's guess. I kind of really want to see Stroll have a clean race. Um, I would like to see what he has available pace-wise in that car. We, I think this is Stroll's year to show that maybe he isn't there just because his dad owns a team that he actually has the pace. Because I'd say the only time we've really seen it was Turkey when he got pole position. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how, how Stroll can can get around that Aston Martin. Mm. I tend to agree, unfortunately, that I think it's going to be Verstappen-Perez 1-2. Maybe Perez first if there is some kind of reliability issue. But I do really like the stat. I saw this on F1 Stats Guru. And I really like the stat that every driver who's ever got 101 podiums has won their 101st. So I would love it if Alonso could keep that going and somehow win the Australian Grand Prix. I don't know how that would come about, whether it would be reliability on Red Bull's part or maybe, I don't know, they come together on track, who knows. But yeah, that'll be interesting to see how far up the order he can get. It, it would take a lot, I think, for that to happen. But, I know. But, you know, miracles happen in Formula 1. Don't push one, my dreams. Is, it's one of the beautiful things about Formula 1 is that miracles do happen. You know, whether it be Sebastian getting on the podium in Baku or Esteban, Pierre or Ricardo winning races, you know, that you would never have pinned them for. That is what makes F1 special is those days where anyone can win. Yeah, I, I think... I'm also, I think, looking forward to a race with smaller DRS detect, like uh, smaller areas for the DRS. I think that will um, be interesting, and maybe the Red Bull won't have as much of an advantage when it can't use the DRS as often. 
time will tell. The weekend is not far away and we'll have loads to talk about before the next race, I'm sure. But expect the next few podcasts for us to talk about loads of different things. We've obviously, clearly from this, got a lot of different tangents we want to go on. And we're looking forward to getting some more podcasts under our belt. But for now, I think we're going to leave it there. Lots to edit through there, Andrew. You can do that if you like. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and, uh, you know, being a new podcast, we have navigated the world of social media despite the fact that it's our day jobs anyway um and we you know have a twitter and instagram account so you can follow us on uh instagram at track underscore chat or on twitter at at track chat tweets so please do give us a follow we will uh, post some stuff about the race and our opinions and thoughts on what happens and any controversial thoughts um, which I'm sure we'll have many of because it is us two and we can't stop ourselves um, because we just love talking about F1 so damn much. If you hadn't gathered that already. So yeah, thank you for joining us for this first episode and we will see you next time um, to tell you more about Formula 1 and have a little bit of a track chat. <laughs>